The use of sugar as an artistic medium goes back to at least the 11th century BC, when Middle Eastern artisans created intricate sculptures using the sweet substance. The practice spread and became very popular in the Western world, starting around the Renaissance up through the 18th century. Fantastical sugar sculptures donning dining tables as a sign of wealth and status. The shaped black truffles are murderously heavy Tiffany candlesticks of our time. These days, when you think of sugar art, you might immediately picture decorative adornments to desserts. Stunning lifelike flowers, edible gold, and fondant used to sculpt cakes that look like anything but cake. But there are artists who work with sugar in a way where it serves as both the medium as well as metaphor. Where sugar as an idea, a product, a political tool becomes the driving force behind the work. From William Lamson's stunning Solarium at Storm King, and Marco Braun's 2,000 Cups for the Museum of Art and Design, to Carol Walker's A Subtlety, or The Marvelous Sugar Baby, her massive sculpture shown in 2014 at the now-demolished Domino Factory in Brooklyn, New York, modern artists are taking sugar work off the cake stands and out into fields, warehouses, and even city streets. Which brings me to my guest, artist Shelley Miller. I found her through Instagram and became immediately entranced with her work. Using frosting, hand-formed sugar tiles, and food color, Shelley creates graffiti and murals that address power, feminism, and the slavery and colonization of the sugar trade. I spoke with her a few weeks ago from her home in Montreal, Canada. You are listening to the Cake Historian Podcast, where we explore history and culture through the lens of cake. I'm your host, Jessica Reed. I am talking with Shelley Miller, a graffiti artist and conceptual artists based in Montreal, Canada, is that correct? Yes, I'm based in Montreal. Okay. Um, thank you. Welcome for being on the show. And thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. <laughs> uh, I'm going to note that Shelly's in the east where it's currently incredibly hot, so her air conditioning's on. There might be occasional sounds of an air conditioner. I guess if we could start, I would love to hear a little bit about your background because... You've obviously been doing this work, as far as I read on your website, for quite a long time, almost two decades now. Yeah, it's true. Um, people often ask me if I grew up, you know, with parents or grandparents owning a bakery or something like that, and the answer is no. Um, I really just started dabbling with sugar when I was an undergrad student. Um, I did my undergrad at the Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary. And funnily enough, uh, a friend of mine was working at a bakery, and they had uh, a large, like a huge five, or, I don't know, ten gallon or something, pail of icing sugar, um, like mixed icing that they couldn't use because it had too much shortening in it. Somebody got the ratios wrong. And so she said, you know, there's this huge tub of icing, we're going to throw it out, do you want to use it? And of course, being an art student, not a lot of money, you're always looking for cheap or inexpensive materials to use and uh, I said yeah sure so I started kind of playing around with that and I was doing a lot of work at that time with uh, the theme of weddings and you know kind of investigating um, sort of my early feminist days I guess you could say uh, questioning marriage and the institution of marriage and women's roles and housewives and all you know all those sorts of issues so I was using um, piped ice and sugar to make sort of a bride motif and I was covering domestic objects and chairs with this motif. So it kind of looked like a lace doily. Um, and I liked using 
the icing sugar as a form of decoration to mimic other forms of decoration. So as I say, first it was sort of mimicking different types of um, knitted wear and other sort of domestic craft practices. And then I started using it on walls, interior walls, to look like architectural ornamentation. Because, uh, you know, pipe sugar can look a lot like plaster work. Um, you know, it has a very kind of baroque feel to it. And then after working on some interior walls, uh, after a few years, I eventually sort of progressed to trying it on exterior walls. Um, and I had already been working with sugar for quite a few years before I got to that point. Um, and when I did my very first outdoor installation on a city wall, using pipe sugar, uh, I guess that was sort of, that's sort of what hooked me uh, into wanting to keep using it. I really liked seeing it wash away. Um, that impermanent factor has become really important in my work. It's something that I continue to do and continue to want to do it in that kind of a setting, you know, where it does wash away and fade and crumble and change over time. Yeah, that's one of my favorite aspects of your work is how it dissolves. Uh, it's uh, your, I don't know if they're, are they sugar tiles, the murals? Yeah, so there's two different styles that I do. One is more of the piped, uh, kind of more bas-relief work. And then the other type is the ones that look like tile murals, but they're made out of sugar tiles. I make the tiles, and then once they're dry and hard, I paint the imagery onto them. What do you use and as paint? It's, I basically just use edible food decorating colors. Wow. Like okay. uh, the really concentrated um, inks. And I dilute it with the clear, clear alcohol. So you really do it like a cake decorator or an, or a sugar decorator, but you're using it as a. It's amazing. I just sorry. I find this so beautiful, and um, I've always had the, the sort of notion that if I'm presenting something as edible, and somebody ever wanted to take a piece and eat it, I need to make sure that it's not toxic. <laughs> you know, has that ever happened? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, my son always wants to break pieces off and eat it. Um, in Brazil, I've seen kids, you know, people break off little chunks and eat it. So yeah. I, it, I don't know if it happens that often, but certainly I, I have seen it happen on a, on a few occasions. Yeah, I noticed that you did do quite a bit of work in Brazil. Can you talk about your work in Brazil a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I first went to Brazil in 2004 for a residency. Uh, it's a great residency. It's called the Sacatar uh, Foundation, and it's on an island near the city of Salvador. So that was for two months, and, you know, it's kind of funny looking back. I originally was not going to do anything with sugar. I just thought, you know, it's a residency. It's two months to explore new ideas. You know, that was sort of their whole... Um, what they really pitched to artists was, you know, you can do whatever you want, you don't have to do anything at all, just absorb this place, this culture, and see what happens. So I thought it would be nice to try something different. So um, I did primarily do a lot of uh, sand sculpture work and photography-based work, but once I started to learn a little bit more about the place and its history, I was thinking that it would be, you know, kind of a shame not to explore sugar more there because of the history of sugar in Brazil and its links to colonization and slavery. 
so once I started looking into that history, um, I just really, really wanted to do sugar projects in Brazil. Um, so then I went back about a year later to do a small project, and then that just sort of kept snowballing into doing more and more murals there as part of exhibitions um, and personal projects. And that's really where the the tile, the ceramic tile um, murals began for me. Um, and if you've noticed, they're they're all blue. Yeah, I always paint blue, which is a reference to something called azulejos, which is the painted blue style of ceramic murals that I first also began to see in Brazil. But it's uh, you know it stems from Portugal. It's a very uh, common decorative um, practice in, in Portugal, the azulejo, and then of course with the Portuguese influence in Brazil, um, since. Brazil was colonized by the, by the Portuguese. You see a lot of those in Brazil as well. And there's also a lot of ship imagery um, in Azulejos, which was the, the very first one that I did was the image of a ship. And the intention there was to reference the history of Brazil and the colonization and to kind of question how, you know, the ship imagery in real ceramic murals is often meant as like a symbol of of pride, you know, pride in this conquest and colonizing new lands, but I wanted to show uh, sort of the other side of it, which is the the detrimental side of how uh, it also resulted in slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And in, you know, forced forcing people to work in sugarcane fields for hundreds of years. Um, Brazil was one of the kind of first founding countries um, in the in the sugar industry, the global sugar trade industry. So the links there, um, it's very important to the founding of Brazil and its history. And since I had already been working with sugar for a number of years, I felt like it was important to actually look into sugar itself. You know, up until then, I was using sugar more as a metaphor for taste and desire and excess and consumer culture, um, you know, and all those kinds of things. But Mm-hmm. At that point, I realized, you know, I need to actually look into sugar itself as a material and its history. So that's like you're referring to your sumptuous still life series that was cakes, kind of the early, an earlier project where you were, that, that seemed very focused on, you had um, cars out of cakes and handbags, and it seemed that that was your way of exploring uh, consumerism, excess, that, that sort, am I right about that? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the composition of those uh, reference Dutch still life paintings. Yeah, which is beautiful. Which I wanted to make that comparison, you know, between the kinds of objects that were depicted in Dutch still life paintings. You know, even if they were just fruits, those were luxury products at that time. You know, we look at it today and we think, oh, it's just fruit, you know, <laughs> big deal. <laughs> but it was also a symbol of these, these luxury products that came from all over the world which, you know, was a luxury at that time. Yeah, it was um, only the wealthy that were eating fruit like that back then. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to show sort of modern-day symbols uh, of luxury. But still edible. I see on your site there's some photos, and and I'll post links to everything on my site, cakestoring.com. Uh, but on your site, Shelley Miller Studio, I know there's photos of people appears to be actually eating your pieces. Yeah, those were um, those were mostly staged 
um, before the photo shoot. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I had an idea of the photo series that I wanted to present. And so, you know, photography has become a fairly important part of this work because it's temporary. Mm -hmm. So with one, uh, like, for example, the one that's called Le Reve, uh, I always knew that it would be three photos that I would exhibit in the end. So I wanted the sort of before, the during, the feast, and then the after, just where you sort of see the, uh, the crumbs and the remains of the mm -hmm. feast. I'm wondering, so now it looks like you're, because your most recent piece, at least as far as I've seen on your blog, is the Power Mural. Correct. That just went up uh, a few weeks ago. And I think I saw on, maybe it was on Instagram, that it got tagged by someone else. Yeah, it was up for, you know, maybe a week. And somebody completely covered it with spray paint, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is new. Um, I mean, I fully accept that when you put something in the public sphere, anything can happen. Yeah. And that's always why I put it up in the daytime and I take good pictures of it because I don't know if it's going to be there the next day. Um, but usually my biggest foe is, is the elements, is weather, you know, not knowing if it's going to rain. I've never had anybody, like, vandalize um, a piece or, you know, any graffiti artists covered up or do anything like that. So it was a little bit surprising. But um, I'm not done. Uh, you know, there's more that's going to happen. <laughs> that's, all, <laughs> yeah. that's all I'm going to say at this point. <laughs> um, and it seems like in some of uh, these later works, uh, you know, you've got your sugar tile murals referencing colonization and slavery, but you also use your work to talk about uh, feminism and power, well, obviously power. Um, so is your is your current direction, uh, what, what is the focus you are trying to get across in more in some of your more current pieces? Is it still dealing with the sugar trade, or are you um, leaning more towards kind of the, what's currently in the big conversation, you know, with the Me Too movement and, and everything? And, well, I mean, with women, it's always a Me Too movement, but... I feel like the, um, the the tile murals have always been fairly linked to location. Um, I tend to really only do them in a location where I can play off of like, the history of a certain place. So I'm still open to doing them if it seems relevant in a certain place, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, you know the sort of undertones of feminism have always been in the work being that it's through sugar and a, you know, a domestic practice and it's how the work developed was thinking about using a very lowbrow um, material and practice like cake decorating, something that's more associated to craft practices and you know women in the home and trying to take that into the realm of architecture and bringing it out of the home and into a public space. So that was sort of always rooted in a feminist um, sort of ideal but over the years, you know, I, I don't really necessarily think about it as much or talk about it as much just because it feels like I don't, it's not at the forefront mm -hmm. of my, my thinking anymore, but it's always, it's always there. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I think that in terms of power, it can speak to a lot of different things mm. because with, with that piece, you know, it didn't really see its full life, if I could put it that way. <laughs> um, 
so uh, I'm doing a residency in August and I'm planning to do something sort of similar because the whole concept of that piece was that it would crumble and decay and erode and that's the whole concept of the piece and then with the the because they didn't just tag it they covered it entirely correct and paint yeah so in a weird way they've embalmed it yeah so it sort of <laughs> it, it last longer it's almost it's weird it's almost like a reference to power on top of power because they're like oh hey we're not gonna let you uh your piece I mean the way yeah it, that, that's totally the history of graffiti it's yeah you know it's all but egos but I'm not sure they probably went up and thought, this is a woman making a statement about this with this crumbling, decaying power piece. Let's cover it up. Maybe they did. I don't know. But um, it is a fascinating uh, juxtaposition between your original piece and what they didn't really, it's not, there's just not, I wouldn't call a piece as opposed to, I, I don't know. Do you know anything about who, who did that? I don't know them. I don't know this person uh, personally, but I have friends who know this person, and it seems to be um, a part of his uh, his mo, so to speak. It's interesting. I think if he had taken the time to do his research and know more about me or know what the piece was about, he'd realize that you know we're on the same side, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> but it's, but it's all good, you yeah. know. Um, like I say, I have this expression. All is fair in love and street art. So once it's out there, you know, anything can happen. But uh, as I say, I have some, some plans in mind anyway. So that's great. And um, do you find that you get to travel? I, I used, You mentioned that you have a child. Do you get to travel frequently? Um, yeah, well, my son is six and a half. So sort of depends you know when he was really little I would still travel a lot because I could just take him everywhere yeah <laughs> but then there was a few years where it was getting a little bit harder um I still I'm still traveling um it's just a little bit more logistics but yeah. um it's something that is really important to me so I just find ways to to do it and even sometimes bring him along when it's possible which would be I think sounds like Oh, here comes the cat. Sorry. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Um, I, I love the idea of, of this might be going into a, an area that uh, I didn't mention in our pre-discussion we were going to talk about, but the idea of being a, a working female artist who's also a mother, I know that there's some conflicts that can come up. Um, I myself have, a, have an almost six-year-old daughter, and trying to figure out how to maintain my own artistic practice as well as parent, it, it, it's, for me at least, it's, it can be very complicated. And I just do my best to kind of be a good mom and continue to do the work that I want to do. Uh, so... And I have a girl, so I think, especially for the type of work that you do, it must be kind of interesting for your son to see you take pride in your work and the type of work that you do. I mean, even though he probably doesn't quite get the concepts behind it. Do you involve your son in any way in the process since you are working with Sugar? is he must? And you said he sometimes wants to take bits. Is he intrigued by the work that you do, or...? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I so I do these ephemeral sugar pieces, but I also 
do permanent public art. Yes, that um, scene, the, like McGill, you have a piece, a big mural at McGill, I think? At the McGill University Hospital, yeah. yes. Okay. So, um, you know, my son has gone out to see a lot of my works in public space, and um, he's definitely proud, you know, I, I can tell. And in terms of the sugar work, uh, let, well, I did involve him in it. When I, as soon as I put it up, I took him out that day to show him what I did. And then um, after it had gotten covered with paint, um, <laughs> I took him out because I wanted to take some pictures of it. I'm also a single mom, so there's times oh, when wow. okay. you know, he has to come with me because uh, I don't have any other childcare options. And he was so angry, like he was kicking the wall. Um, he was like, they ruined it. <laughs> and I'm like, baby, it's okay. It's all good. You know, like when we put things out in public spaces, you know, we have to accept anything can happen. Wow. And, but he, he was definitely um, upset on my behalf. Wow. <laughs> are you are you comfortable at all talking a little bit more about what it's like being a working artist mother and single mother at that? Like how how that works for you in your life? If you're not totally okay, I did I'm springing this question on you. So No, no, it's all good. Um I mean, when I was even just pregnant, I thought a lot about if it was time to make some changes and get a quote-unquote real job because that might be better for stability and for my son and, you know, all those questions. But in the end, I just really felt at that time and I still believe that to be a good parent, I have to be good and whole as a human. And if I left this thing that I love doing and that I'm passionate about to do something that I was, like, miserable doing, I don't know how I could be a good parent. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I could that could be a good thing for him and to then one day realize oh I gave up my dream for you (laughs) yeah you know I think he would feel pretty lousy to think that I had given up such a big part of myself um so it just means you know a lot more tough choices and hustling to make sure that I can make it work and that I can still provide for him um because obviously I don't want to have him suffer in some way because of you know, my, my creative practice, even though, as I mentioned, it's, you know, a passion of mine, I still have to pay the bills and make sure that I'm still providing for them. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think that, I think that I'm showing him a lot of good values as well in terms of doing what you love and working hard at what you love. And, you know, he, he has a lot of pride in what I do. And I think that there's, a lot of value and benefits in having parents that maybe don't take the sort of conventional uh, approach. I agree with you 100%. I think uh, it's something that I'm coming to terms with myself in because because I, I take a lot of time to work. Even sometimes when she's around, I have to figure out ways to get the work done I need to do as well as, you know, I have her around but not you know I can't spend every second completely focused on on her frankly um but I think especially now it's good I do believe it's great to show our kids that hard work and love don't have to be separate things you can you can work hard at something you love and have a complete life 
and uh, at least it's something I'm trying to do, and it sounds like you're doing a great job at it, as hard as it can be at times, I'm sure. I know that it's important also if I'm doing a project and he has to be around that I have to give him little jobs mm-hmm. <laughs> so that he feels important and that he's part of it and that it's not, um, you know, oh, this is this is more important than you, so you yeah. just sit and wait. Yeah, I'm going to be I over met, here working. Yeah. <laughs> I met somebody several years back. I won't say any names, but his parents are like very famous, uh, famous musician and a, and a painter. And he was a little bit sort of lost in life, I guess you could say. And he said something to me, and this is before I had children, but he said he just remembers when he was young, his mom was always in the studio and sort of didn't have time for him. And that really stuck with me. And I always said, if I have kids, I still want to do what I love, but I really need to make sure that I don't, because you know, you're not really doing a service to your, your children if you're not going to still make time for them, obviously, and make them feel included in your life. And so even when I have had projects and I'm busy and I'm focused and I I can't really focus on parenting, I know that I need to, going into it, I need to have some plans in place so that he has jobs, so that he feels like he's part of this. Because he does. He feels like he is part of the work I do. And so I need to also kind of honor that and encourage that because... It's good, you know, that's a good thing, and he can learn a lot from it. It's really smart, and and I'll, I'm, I don't know if I'm feeling shame or, uh, you know, it is something I definitely struggle with, and figuring out, because I have sort of anxious perfectionist tendencies that kind of, you know, she'll want to help me bake, and half the ingredients (laughs) will end up on the floor or something, so, but I love the idea of going into a project before it begins with projects for your kid or kids if you have more than one but um, I think because at least I mean for it sounds like for your son and my daughter as well she loves being involved she loves feeling part of it I mean the very first episode of this podcast has an interview with her because she wanted to be part of it and so I love I love the idea I, I love that idea of making your kid a part of the work to allow you to do the work and being smart about it. And it's another way to use your creativity because you have to think about how someone who, you know, maybe has less nimble fingers or not very strong piping skills or perhaps breaks half the eggs when you're trying to make a cake (laughs) can still be part of your work. And so I I love that that's something that you do and, and I probably will be copying that and incorporating that into what I do because I think it's really smart I find that you know he gets bored after a few minutes anyway but as long as <laughs> we can start with him having some jobs and yeah. then he feels important and then he can go off and do something else <laughs> yeah that's I love that um so I, I, so you said you're going into a residency soon yeah it's um I mean it's called a residency I mean well it's more of a symposium so it's uh, a one-month-long residency, but um, it's a bit unusual, I mean, in my experience, that from, uh, let's see, Wednesday through to Sunday, so five days of the week from noon to five, the studio doors are open to the public. 
So there's also kind of a high level of engagement hmm. with the public. Because in the past, most residencies I've done, it's very much about seclusion and time for you to generate new ideas, you know, kind of just have some, yeah. some moment of peace. Whereas this is not quite that. Um, but there's, uh, I think it's about 20 artists, most Canadian, some international, who will all be there um, in sort of a small place uh, about an hour north of Quebec City called Bay St. Paul. And you'll be working on, your, you'll continue to be working on these sugar pieces? I'm going to do a sugar piece while you're there. You are going to do a sugar piece while you're there. Now, you have really good piping skills. <laughs> so, um, and, and did you, going back real quick, I just wanted to, uh, in the Sumptuous Still Life series, did you bake all those cakes yourself? Yes, I did. And Okay, so do you have any culinary training or is this all self-taught? All self-taught. Practice. <laughs> yeah, practice, exactly. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything I didn't bring up? Well, I mean, there's always more I could say, but <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I can just go on and on and on. Yeah, no, I mean, I can too. And sometimes I might, it takes me a few minutes to sort of wrap my head around things and come up with questions that are, well, that make sense <laughs> or are questions as opposed to rambling uh sets of words coming out of my mouth but um I think but I, I mean I agree that sometimes the work there's a bit of a like I think you covered it some that are more about like history and sugars you know history and colonization and then some have sort of feel like they're not really so much about that but more about like a, a feminist stance yeah so to speak in public spaces but I mean in my mind sugar is always political and it's one of the reasons I like using sugar is because I think it's a good metaphor of so many things we don't question. If that makes sense? No, it does. Did you, uh, I, I think it was the Carol Walker piece at the Domino Sugar Factory. Are you familiar right. with that? Did you get down to New York to see that at all? or I did not see it in life, but I've seen, you know, documentation of it. Yeah. It just, I, I when I was looking into your work, I thought about it as sort of a different take to to sort of what she was doing. You don't see that many, I mean, maybe, I feel like I haven't seen that many people working with sugar in this way. I think when people think of sugar work or sugar art, they think of cake, instantly of wedding cakes or, you know, those crazy TV shows with people. I mean, making. I probably know of every contemporary artists in the world using sugar <laughs> because I've been doing this for so long and I've been in several exhibitions like all over the world that are about sugar and artists working with sugar and book compilations so I know of you know a few more but I mean I agree that there's not tons of people using sugar as a contemporary discourse well, I just, I'm, and I think even that not a lot of people recognize or realize that artists are using sugar. I mean, the Kara Walker piece made big news, but, and I think for a lot of people, that's what they think of when they think of art made of sugar. 
I never chose sugar as a medium because I love sugar or I love making cakes, you know? Right. I actually don't like making cakes. That was the um, other thing I wanted to talk to you about is when I was asking you about a cake for this, for, to do for the cake of the episode, you said you don't actually really eat sugar. <laughs> um, and I wanted to, I don't know even know what I wanted to ask about that other than, you know, I love, or I think it's really interesting that you work in sugar, but have you always been not really a sweets eater, or is it more of a working around it, don't want to eat it? No, I, I would say that I, I do have a sweet tooth. I like sweet things, but um, I try not to eat, you know, really processed things mm -hmm. generally. So if I eat things that are sweetened, I, I try to have it be with more natural sweeteners. Um, and that's just, I guess, this, you know, gradual thing. I think when you're a kid and younger, you just eat whatever. <laughs> and then yeah. As you're an adult, you start to be a little bit more discerning. But for me, you know, sugar is really like a symbol of, of things. And that's why I like to use it. I've also done a lot of, I mean, because sugar is so easily recognized and sort of loved by everyone, I've done uh, a lot of talks and workshops with kids and youth. And I find it a great material for that because everyone can enter the work on some level. You know, it's not like th there are higher levels, so to speak, of, of concept and history. If you know about that or if you want to know more about the work, that you can enter the work with that kind of a perspective. But even if you're like a kid, you can still appreciate the work on, on a different level. And, uh, you know, I've always sort of believed in that expression of, uh, what is it, it's easier to attract bees with honey than vinegar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of, like, some bigger concepts about where do materials come from, where does our food come from, where do your sneakers come from, you know, I can use sugar as a way to bridge into other conversations about, because I think, you know, a lot of people now realize, okay, yes, sugar, cotton, these things were produced with slave labor for hundreds of years. But, oh, that's the past. You know, yeah. it's history. But I say, no, no, but, like, think about it. You know, sugar has always been this innocuous substance that's always tasted good, that's never really, doesn't really seem to have bad connotations when you just look at it on its own. But there are so many other things, even today, that we could make comparables to. I mean, maybe not as grand as 300 years of slavery, but, like, where do things come from? Yeah. Who is producing these things? Who is growing these things? Where do your strawberries come from? You know, there there's massive problems today with migrant workers and people not being paid enough and terrible working conditions of laborers while multi-billion dollar corporations profit. Um, it's not, like, a direct comparable, but there's still lots of things happening today that we should know about and we should care about more. And so I think that sugar is just one way to kind of start conversations. I think that's a beautiful way to end this episode <laughs> uh, because I, I agree with you. And I think um, that is one of the great powers of art, especially art that's more approachable for people. Uh, that's not amazing. That's not locked up in a fancy museum that costs $20 to get into. Uh, and it's not accessible to a lot of people. You know, your work, it's out there on the streets. It's, and it makes people think. And I, that's what we need. Yeah, you reminded me of also why I enjoy doing this work in public spaces. And that's 
when I was younger, I used to do more work in galleries and I used to kind of be the artist that wanted to lock myself up in my studio and not show anybody anything until it was done. <laughs> um, and then working in public spaces was really quite uncomfortable because I, I felt really nervous and insecure about people watching me work and asking me questions. But over time, I kind of got a little bit more at ease because it was really it was really enlightening to sort of see people's reactions and comments and to get the questions. And um, that in itself started to kind of drive and fuel the work and the interest. And also, like, you know, years after I would do a certain project, I'd meet somebody and they would say, oh, that was you. Like, you're the sugar lady. I saw that piece you did on such and such a street. And... I started to realize how many more people you can reach when you're working in a public space. And you don't even know. You don't even know who <laughs> sees it. But it's likely a lot more than if it was in a gallery, yeah. uh, as you say. So I find that, you know, kind of inspiring uh, to keep working in that, in that kind of a format. So I completely forgot to ask her the end of episode question. I emailed Shelley after the interview to ask... If you could have a slice of cake with anyone alive or dead, who would it be and what would you share? This is what she replied. I would love to create a sugar mural for the show Queen Sugar, directed by Ava DuVernay. So I would choose to sit down with Ava DuVernay in Louisiana, where the show is filmed. I think pecan pie would be on the menu. And with pie, that's a wrap on episode three. All links, as well as the cake of the episode, which happens to incorporate Renaissance sugar work if you're curious, show notes and references can be found on my website, thecakehistorian.com, as well as in the podcast notes. Thanks again to Alejandro Hernandez for the original music. Have a cake story to share? Email me at hello at thecakehistorian.com. Favorites might end up on air or as a future show. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review via your favorite podcast directory. Today I'll leave you with a quote from the movie Scarface that was adapted by the television wordsmith Homer Simpson. And I apologize profusely for my bad accent. In America, first you get the sugar, then you get the power, then you get the women. <laughs>